All right. Listen, I'm glad to be back in the pulpit after being gone for uh, the last uh, several days on a trip to the Holy Land, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, I'm glad to be able to share a special message about something that I haven't talked about here at Mount Pleasant in some time. One of the highlights of every trip to Israel, this was my third trip, is visiting a place called the Yardinit Baptismal baptismal Site. It's located on the Jordan River in the Galilee region of northern Israel. Jesus, of course, if you're familiar with his life, was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 3. Now, this isn't the exact site where John the Baptist baptized Jesus, but it's a beautiful place. In fact, one of my favorite pictures from, I, I can't remember if it was my trip in 2014 or 2017, my wife Sandy took this picture, is of the baptismal site there. Isn't that beautiful? It's a beautiful, beautiful setting. They've created uh, some, some walkways and some areas where you can do the baptisms. This past uh, trip, I baptized 36 of our folks uh, in the Jordan River. All of them had been baptized before, but it's just a special experience that some people want to have when they go to the Holy Land to be baptized in the Jordan River, the same river that Jesus was baptized in. I did send back a video uh, of me baptizing my son-in-law, Morgan, but the video quality just didn't transfer from the phone to the uh, to the screen in here, or the projector in here very well, and so I'm not uh, going to be able to show that one. But it was just, it's always just such a, a moving experience. I love baptisms. I do. I love performing them. I love watching them. I love celebrating them. I love everything about baptism except the endless debates among Christians about the meaning and the method. And I often wonder, how did something that should be one of the most precious and memorable experiences of the Christian life become something that divides so many believers? When it comes to the Christian life, this may surprise you, but when it comes to the Christian life, and bear in mind, this is over the past 40 years of my life. When it comes to the Christian life, I'm asked more questions about baptism than any other subject. Can you believe that? Of all the challenges we have as Christians living in a fallen and a sinful world, the most questions that I am asked, or the most common questions that I am asked from believers about the Christian life are questions about baptism. I'm going to pause for a moment before I go any further, and I'm going to ask you for the next 30 or 35 minutes, if you would just listen to what I have to share from the scriptures about baptism with as open and honest a heart and mind as possible. I love being a pastor of an independent Christian church. That's what Mount Pleasant Christian Church is. We're not a denominational church. We're not connected to a denomination. We're connected to a brotherhood of other Christian churches around the world, about 6,000. And it's just under the heading independent Christian churches. I love that. One of the things I love about it is that we have believers in our church from every single church background imaginable. I mean every single church background imaginable. And we also have people who had no church background who are part of our church. That means we bring with us all kinds of teachings and all kinds of beliefs related to issues in the Christian life. And that certainly includes baptism because different churches teach different things about baptism. And so I'm going to share with you today what I believe about baptism. And I'm going to ask that you listen to me with an open and an honest heart. One of the things that I've discovered over the years, and I say this every single time I teach about baptism, is that a lot of people have developed their convictions about baptism based on verses in the Bible that don't even talk about baptism. Don't even mention it. Now, I will tell you that one of the most fundamental and important rules of interpreting the Scriptures, there's a name for that, it's called hermeneutics, which is the rules 
and the principles for interpreting the Bible, understanding the Bible, one of the most important principles of hermeneutics is that we interpret the Bible with the Bible. You've heard me say that before, right? Everyone say right. I've said that many times. You need to understand that. We interpret the Bible with the Bible. But to develop your belief and your conviction about baptism without using any verses that talk about baptism is not a good approach. Are there verses in the Bible that we need to understand as we develop our belief about baptism? Absolutely, verses that don't talk about baptism that we need to understand as we develop our belief. But using those verses exclusively is not a good hermeneutical approach to understanding what the Bible says about baptism. That can't be our exclusive approach to just use verses that don't talk about it. Here are the most common questions that I have gotten over the years related to baptism. Does someone have to be baptized to go to heaven? Does your church believe someone has to be baptized to go to heaven? Do you believe someone has to be baptized to go to heaven? You see a theme in those questions? And how these different questions are phrased when they're asked can be interesting. And what I mean by that is oftentimes someone will ask me one of those questions beginning with these words. You don't believe someone has to be baptized to go to heaven. You don't believe, and then they fill in the blank. And what comes across in the question, whether it's intended or not, is a condescending attitude and a diminished view of baptism, which quite frankly is something that I, as a student of the Bible, do not find in the pages of the scriptures. And whenever those questions come, and listen to me, I'm certain, I'm absolutely confident that there are going to be people in every service this weekend and people listening to me online who have asked me those questions. And I want you to know, I'm not thinking about you as I'm sharing this message. I'm not judging you. I'm not being critical of you. You just need to understand me. I'm not a liar. I'm telling you the truth. I'm just trying as I tell you what I believe the Bible teaches about baptism, to be as honest and direct as possible. But whenever those questions come, what I really want to say as my response more than anything else is, you're asking the wrong question. That's the wrong question. If somebody says, do you believe someone has to go be baptized to go to heaven? I want to say you're asking the wrong question. Sometimes I will say that, sometimes I won't. Oftentimes it depends on the setting, it depends on how much time I have to try to answer the question. But at least from my perspective, as a student of the Bible, asking any question related to baptism that begins with the words or includes the words, do I have to, or do you have to, or does someone have to, is simply the wrong question. And just to be clear, I don't believe in baptismal regeneration. Did everybody hear me say that? Say yes. I do not believe in baptismal regeneration. This church does not believe or teach baptismal regeneration. We do not believe that a person is saved solely through the act of baptism because no one, everyone say no one, no one is saved by a ceremony. Somebody say amen to that. No one. No one is saved by a ceremony. The Bible makes clear that we are saved by God's grace through faith. The Bible makes it clear that we are saved by God's grace through faith. That's something that we've talked about many, many times over the years. Look at these words on the screen from Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. The apostle Paul writes and says, Therefore, 
Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been justified, in the original language of the New Testament, the word justified is the Greek word dekeiao, and it literally means to be made right or to be made righteous. And so Paul is saying, therefore, since we have been made right or righteous, since we've been made right with God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? Paul says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works. By the way, I've never thought of baptism as a work. So that no one can boast. And when the Bible talks about works in the New Testament, primarily it's talking about people who believe that you are saved or you're right with God by following the works of the law. I have never, one single time in my life as a believer, thought of baptism as a work. Never, ever. That's never been on my radar. We are saved by faith. I believe this to be an absolute truth of the Christian life. At the same time, friends, I will tell you, I don't believe you can read the New Testament with an open heart and not see that baptism matters because baptism is the expression of our saving faith. It is the expression of our saving faith. In fact, here's a statement that I didn't come up with, but I've heard it and read it multiple times in multiple places. We are saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. What does that mean? It means that a saving faith is expressed, and one of the clearest and most significant expressions of that saving faith is the act of baptism. That is the undeniable truth of the New Testament. So what I want to do is just, and I'm going to do this with an eye on the clock. It's probably not going to matter, but I'm going to watch the clock. <laughs> is I'm going to highlight what I consider to be significant teaching in the scriptures about baptism. There's no outline in your insert because I have no outline. We're just going to do this. Normally, I would begin with the baptism of Jesus. I, I, I referred to uh, uh, I'll refer to that, but I'm going to refer to that later in the message. Let's just begin like this. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 28 with the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. And by the way, I've got a New International Version Bible with me this morning. Everybody see this? A 1984, a brand new 1984 version because of the graciousness of uh, a member of our church who had that and brought it over to my house last Sunday after church. For fear of my life, she brought it to me at my house while my family was having lunch together. When we rejoin our verse-by-verse -verse journey through the Gospel of Matthew in 2020, we'll begin in Matthew chapter 26. There's 28 chapters, and we'll be talking about this at the very end of the study. But let me just read Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. These were the last words Jesus said to the disciples before he returned to heaven. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Note this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you all always to the very end of the age. Those are the last words Jesus spoke to the disciples. And in the spirit, friends, in the spirit of what I believe to be the single most important rule when it comes to hermeneutics, which is, again, the principles that we use to study and understand the Bible, in the spirit of the most in, single most important rule of interpretation, which is when the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, Here's the only conclusion we can come to based on those words from Jesus. It's impossible. Everyone say impossible. Impossible to obey the Great Commission and neglect baptism. 
Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And then he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to obey the Great Commission and neglect baptism because it is an integral part of Jesus' final command to his disciples. And what you see when you move from the end of the Gospel of Matthew there in chapter 28 or the end of any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is you go immediately in your Bible to the book of Acts, which is the history book of the New Testament, which tells us what those apostles, what those disciples, what those followers did once Jesus returned to heaven. And what you see as you go through the book of Acts is they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They went, they made disciples, and they baptized them as they went. In fact, open your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. This is, listen to me, this was about 40 days after Jesus' ascension into heaven, about 40 days after he gave these disciples the Great Commission. And they were in Jerusalem. It was the day of Pentecost, so thousands upon thousands of people were in Jerusalem, and there were God-fearing Jews there. Acts chapter 2 and verse 5 says, there were God-fearing Jews there from every nation under heaven. And if you know the story, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, the apostles, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Do you remember that? Tongues of fire appeared above their heads, and they began to speak languages that they didn't know that they couldn't speak under the divine power of God, so that everyone there heard the message in their own language. Well, that created a lot of confusion among the people there. And so what happens, and I'm paraphrasing this now, is the apostle Peter steps into the confusion. And when he steps into the confusion, he preaches the very first gospel sermon ever preached about Jesus. And this is how his message ends. This is Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. Peter said, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then you get to verses 37 and 38. And this is what Luke writes as the result of that message from Peter. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, cut to the heart. That means they were deeply convicted and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? How are we to respond to this message about Jesus? And Acts 2 and verse 38 says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You scroll down to verse 41 and about three thousand people were baptized that day. It says those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, here's the deal. For some Christians, there's a lot of debate over the meaning of the word for, the simple word for, F-O-R, in verse 38. When Peter says, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In the original language of the New Testament, it's a very simple word. It's, not a, it's, it's a very simple word. It's the Greek word ace. That's how you pronounce it. It's spelled E-I-S. That's the English rendering. The Greek lexicon gives the definition of it as into, unto, to, or towards. And a lot of people debate over what the meaning of that word is. Well, here's the deal, just so you will know for sure. I'm not interested in that debate. I'm not interested in that argument because I think it's an argument that no one this side of heaven will ever win. How many of you know, listen to me close, how many of you know that Christians get bogged down sometimes in arguments that this side of heaven, no one will ever win? How many of you know that? It's a colossal waste of time, oftentimes. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't some doctrinal issues that need to be really preserved and need to be pure, and so you have to speak up. But this is not what describes most of the arguments that separate Christians, and I'm not interested in that argument, and here's why. Because I understand clearly that baptism is the expression of our faith. Regardless of what you want to conclude, 
as the meaning of the word for there, baptism is the expression of our saving faith. And when I read the book of Acts, beginning right here in Acts chapter 2, it's clear to me that the apostles understood that as well. They understood the connection between faith and baptism. You see it here in Acts chapter 2, in verse 38, but this is not the only place. Go over in your Bible to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we meet a man named Philip who was ministering in Samaria. Now, what happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 is we're told that a great persecution comes up against the church. And what started that persecution primarily was the stoning of a man named Stephen. Does that sound familiar to you? The stoning of a man named Stephen, who was the very first Christian martyr. And as a result, a great persecution. You can see this in the first verse of Acts chapter 8. A great persecution spread upon the church, and the believers scattered out. Not the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. But believers scattered out, and this man named Philip went to a place called Samaria. And as he ministered in Samaria, God enabled him to perform signs and wonders and miracles as he preached about Jesus. And so you read Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, and it says, this is the result of all of that. But when they believed, the people of Samaria, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, everybody look up here for a moment. What's the good news of the kingdom of God? The good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus came into the world to offer everyone a new and a better life. Somebody say amen. Amen. A new and a better life than anything you could ever discover on your own. And so, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, what happened? They were baptized, both men and women. Look at me. Baptism is the expression of our faith. There's a clear connection between faith and baptism. Well, that's not the only thing that happens to Philip in Acts chapter 8, because a little bit later, an angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him it's time to leave Samaria, and I want you to go to the desert road that leads from Jerusalem down to a place called Gaza. And Philip obeys. He left a, fruit, he left a fruitful ministry where incredible things were happening. He was performing signs and wonders and miracles, and people were being saved left and right. But he obeys God, and he goes down on this desert road toward a place called Gaza, and he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch, and we're told he's an important man who was the keeper in charge of all the treasury of Candace, who was queen of the Ethiopians. He had been to Jerusalem to worship because he was a seeker. What does that mean? Well, that means even though he had been raised in Ethiopia with all of its religions, all of its false pagan religions, none of them satisfied the depth of his, of his heart. None of those answered the meaningless emptiness of his heart. And so he was seeking. He was thinking to himself, there's got to be more than this. And he went to Jerusalem to try to find out what that could be. He was a seeker. He was seeking answers. He had a copy of the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah, which is amazing because at that period of time, there, weren't, there wouldn't have been many of these copies, and he had possession of one. They would have been incredibly valuable, and he was reading, and he was reading from Isaiah 53, which is a, prof, a prophetic passage about Jesus, a messianic prophetic passage about Jesus, a passage about Jesus as the Messiah, the coming Messiah, and Philip runs up to the chariot. And he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip gets up into the chariot, and the Ethiopian man asks him, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Now listen to Acts chapter 8 and verse 35. Luke writes and says, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news. What's the good news? That Jesus came to offer us a new and a better life. The good news about Jesus and then you get to verses 36 and 38, and that's, this is what it says. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Baptism is the expression 
of our faith. And what we have to infer is that in telling this Ethiopian man the good news about Jesus, he told him about baptism. Or why else would this Ethiopian say, look, here's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Baptism is the expression of our faith. Go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we meet a man named Cornelius who was living in a place called Caesarea. We visited Caesarea. This is Caesarea Maritime. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea where Herod the Great built a spectacular palace. We're told in Acts chapter 10 that he was a God-fearing man who prayed regularly. Well, not far away in the village of Joppa, there was the apostle Peter who was staying in the home of a man named Simon the Tanner. He was praying and he had this unusual vision from God, which was basically a vision that was against everything that he had been taught as a God-fearing Jew with regard to unclean things that he was supposed to avoid. And after that happened, some men came to Joppa looking for him because God had told Cornelius to to send for Peter and they took Peter to Caesarea. Caesarea Maritime, and there he met this man named Cornelius. And I'm going to start reading in Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Because Peter began to speak to Cornelius and those that were there in his house, this same good news that Jesus came to offer us a new and a better life. And verse 44 says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on these Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Everybody look at me for a moment. There's a connection between Believing in Jesus and being baptized. Baptism is the expression of our belief. It's the expression of our faith. You go to Acts chapter 16. And now we're dealing with the Apostle Paul, who wasn't one of the original apostles, but if you know his story, he had a dramatic call and commission from Jesus himself, and he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he travels to a place called Philippi. Some of you went with me on a trip to Greece and Turkey in 2016, and we visited the city of Philippi. We walked on top of the ancient city of Philippi. And while he's there, this is what we read. The first part of it is found in verse 11. It says, from Troas, we put out to sea and and sailed straight from Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple from the, from the purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. Okay, so she acknowledged that there was a God. She was a seeker just like Cornelius was. She just didn't have all the information. Then it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. What was the result? When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Baptism is the expression of our saving faith. Well, if you know the story here, you know that Paul and Barnabas, his associate, got in trouble and got thrown into prison. And about midnight, they were in prison, and they were, they, were, they were bound. We were in the city of Philippi. There was a place there with a big sign that said this was the prison that Paul and 
Barnabas were in. I don't know. I'm Paul and Silas, rather. I'm sorry. We're in. I don't know if that was the exact place, but that's what it said. And it looked like a place that could have been a prison. They were in chains, and, and uh, they were singing hymns and praising God in that miserable situation. And God sent this earthquake uh, that was so violent that the foundation of the prison was shaken, and the prison doors came open, and their chains fell off. And uh, when the jailer woke up and saw what was going on, he rushed in, and he was getting ready to kill himself because he knew that he would be executed for losing his prisoners. But Paul shouted, shouted out and said, don't harm yourself. We're still here. And verse 29 says, the jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the most important question anyone can ever ask. And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, because we're saved by faith, right? Everyone say faith. We're saved by faith. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then verse 32 continues, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. There's a connection between belief and baptism because baptism is the expression of our saving faith. Now, if we had time, we would go next to Acts chapter 19 and talk about Crispus, the synagogue ruler, who when he believed was baptized. We would go to Acts chapter, or that was Acts chapter 18. Then we'd go to Acts chapter 19 and talk about the men who had received, who had at that point had only received the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. I don't have time to explain to you what that means, but when they heard the good news about Jesus, they were baptized. And we see this ongoing pattern that there's a connection between belief and baptism because while we're saved by faith, baptism is the expression of that saving faith. You can't study the book of Acts and not see this clear pattern on the part of those who heard the message of Jesus. When they chose to believe in Jesus, they were baptized because baptism is the expression of our faith. And that's why the conviction of my heart is that when you hear and believe, when you put your faith in the gospel, what we call the gospel, that's the Greek word euangelion, it's the good news that Jesus came to offer us a new and a better life, you need to express that belief and that faith through baptism. I've been a part of a church like Mount Pleasant for my entire life, friends, from the time I was a baby in the nursery until today. I've been in church all my life, all 61 plus years of my life. I've been in church and I've been in a church exactly like this one. Several years ago, when I was a preacher in Houston, I went to play golf one day with a friend of mine, and because there were just two of us, they put us with another twosome. And uh, in that twosome was a man who was a Baptist preacher. At some point, he asked me what I did for a living. I told him I was a pastor as well. He started asking me about my church, and I told him. And then, for the rest of the round, he started calling me a Campbellite. Now, that probably sounds odd to many of you, because I know many of you don't have roots that are steeped in uh, the independent Christian church like I do or just a restoration, what we call restoration movement churches, like I do. But uh, the independent Christian church comes from a movement that happened in the um, early 19th century when Baptist preachers and some Presbyterian preachers and other denominational preachers got together and they said, listen, we want to try to restore the pattern of the church today to the pattern of the New Testament. And out of that came a movement called the Restoration Movement, not the Reformation Movement, Martin Luther, the Restoration Movement, to restore the church to the pattern of the New Testament. And the two founding principles of the Restoration Movement were the authority of the Scriptures and the unity of all believers. 
Those two things, those are the two foundational pillars of the, of the independent Christian church out of the restoration movement. The authority of all believers, or, or the authority of the scripture and the unity of all believers. And if you think about it, we can experience unity as believers if we trust in the authority of the scriptures, right? No man-made rules or idioms get in the way. We just believe and trust in the scriptures. Well, two of the most prominent members of uh, that restoration movement were a father and son named Thomas and Alexander Campbell. And this guy didn't think much of the restoration movement. He didn't think much of the independent Christian church. And so he called me a Campbellite for the rest of the round. And he used it in a negative and derisive way because he was an arrogant, condescending man. Let me tell you something. I've been a part of the restoration movement church my entire life, but I am not a follower of Thomas or Alexander Campbell. I am a follower of Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus alone And my beliefs and my convictions are based on the words of Jesus and those who were inspired by God to carry out the work of Jesus. And that's where my belief about baptism comes from. Let me just go to one final passage of Scripture, and let's talk about the baptism of Jesus for a moment. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Let me hear some pages turning out there so I know you haven't fallen asleep as you go to Matthew chapter 3. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Remember this? And then he went and he spent 40 days and... 40 nights fasting in the wilderness. When we were on our trip to the Holy Land, we stood not right at the base, but close to the base of the Mount of Temptation. And I taught from Matthew chapter 4, the people that were there, and then we all rode camels. It was a pretty cool day. Not all of us, but many people rode on a camel. A camel. But so Jesus comes to John the Baptist. And he comes to John the Baptist, and he wants John the Baptist to baptize him. And John the Baptist, if you remember the story, pushes back. Matthew 3.15 uh, or excuse me, uh, John the Baptist pushes back a little before verse 15. He says, I need to be baptized by you. You come to me. You don't, I'm not going to baptize you. You're the, you're the, John is the one who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. But in Matthew 3.15, Jesus makes this statement. He said, let it be so now, you baptizing me, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this. Now note this, to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean, friends? i got to be honest with you and tell you that at times I've had a hard time understanding exactly what that means, and there's a lot of different opinions. So let me, just, let me just step away from myself for a moment and tell you what someone that I believe in as a student of the Scripture says. This is from the MacArthur commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. He answers the question. He could say, he said, you could say he lived a perfect life, but that didn't fulfill it. That wasn't the fulfillment of all righteousness. How did he fulfill the requirement of the righteousness of God? And MacArthur goes on to say, by dying on a cross. So in submitting to baptism, Jesus prefigured the purpose for which he came, which was to die for sin, bearing the sin of the world, and then to be buried under the waves of divine judgment, then to rise again in new life. He says his baptism in Judea with John the Baptist was a shadow of a far more solemn baptism in Jerusalem soon to come. And when we rejoin our study of Matthew in 2020, that's what we'll be talking about. And that's why one of the most significant reasons to be baptized, friends, listen to me really close, and I've told you this before, is because it symbolically and it figuratively unites us with Jesus in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, he said, or don't you know that all of us 
who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may live, say this with me, a new life, that new and better life that Jesus came to offer. Any question related to baptism that includes the phrase, the phrase or the words, do I have to be, or do you have to be, or does someone have to be, is the wrong question. Do you know where you never, ever encounter that question? You never, ever encounter that question in the pages of the Bible. Never. Not once. And you know why? Because baptism is not something that needs to be qualified. It's something that needs to be obeyed. Because it is the expression of our faith. It's interesting that MacArthur, who would never be accused of being a Campbellite, says it like this. I've been saying to you over and over again, baptism is the expression of our faith. This is how MacArthur says it. He says, baptism is the necessary expression of our faith. Not because baptism, the act solely, the sole act of being baptized saves you, but because it is the expression of your faith that the Bible calls for. That's why in good... In in good spiritual conscience, I cannot view baptism as an afterthought. In our church, we talk about baptism and we, we, we promote it much more than a lot of other churches do. And that's where people get confused sometimes. I cannot promote it as an afterthought. I cannot promote it as something that can be explained away by some simple man-made catchphrase. The Bible makes it clear that it is the expression of our faith. And I'll say it again, it should be for you one of, if not at the very top of the most precious experiences of your life. Now I'm out of time, I'm already in the red up there on the screen. So I don't have time to talk to you about how the New Testament model of baptism was baptism by immersion. And I'm not trying to offend anybody right now, I'm just continuing on my path of just telling you what I honestly believe. I don't have time to tell you that explain to you all about how the New Testament model of baptism was baptism by immersion. The, the word itself comes from the Greek word baptizo. Any form of the word comes from the same word, the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to dip or immerse. There's no question or confusion about that. The other methods of baptism that are used in many churches today were man-made, man-made inventions along the way. I don't have time to talk to you about how the model of baptism in the New Testament was always hearing and believing and choosing for yourself, for yourself to be baptized. There are no examples of infant baptism in the New Testament. And I'm not, please, please hear my heart. I am not, I am not being judgmental when I say that. I'm not questioning your experience. I'm not saying that you're not a believer. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm telling you, though, there are no examples of infant baptism in the New Testament. Some people try to make the case that uh, uh, you can use Acts 16 and the Philippian jailer as a proof text because it says that all, he and all of his family were baptized, but that's verse 33. If you look back at verse 32, right before that, it says, after, this is after Paul and Barnabas or Silas said to him, believe on the Lord and you'll be saved. Verse 32 says, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all 
and to all the others in his house. There was an explanation, and the inference there is that everyone in the household was old enough to hear, old enough to understand, old enough to believe, and old enough to respond. The change from immersion to other methods of baptism, the baptism of infants, those are man-made changes that simply, again, I'm so careful in the way I'm trying to say this, they simply don't have a biblical foundation. And you know what? There's a lot of people over the years who have said to me, I don't think it matters. I respect your opinion, but I wholeheartedly disagree because I think we should have a conviction where we say, I want to do Bible things, Bible ways. When I was a pastor in Houston, I had a family come to my church named Paul and Tammy Bates. I still remember them because they were one of those couples that make what I have done with my life for the last 40 years worthwhile because they were so far from God. They had lived a very, very sinful life, and they were the first people to say that. And I loved them because they were so honest and so open. There was no pretentiousness in them at all. They just came because they had a deep need. And when our church building was built on the piece of property it was built on, it was not far from their house, and somehow God just directed them to come to church one Sunday, and that's how I met them. And I went to their home, and I heard their story, and I shared with them the good news that Jesus can offer them a new and a better life. And they both put their faith and trust in Jesus, and I had the privilege of baptizing both of them. Not long after that, Tammy came to me and told me she had a brother who was in the hospital. He was dying. He was just days away from death, and he had lived a long way from God as well. And she said, will you come to the hospital and talk to him? I said, sure. And so I went to the hospital. I was all of about 27, 28 years old at the time, not very much experience in my life. And I pulled my chair up next to his hospital bed, and I told him the good news about Jesus. I told him about how deeply God loved him, no matter who he was or where he'd been or what he'd done, and how God loved him so much he sent Jesus down on the cross and paid the penalty for his sin. And if he would put his faith and trust in Jesus, that he could have his sin forgiven and he could have the promise of eternal life, whether he had days, months, or years left to live in this world. And I looked at him and I said, do you understand what I've said? He said, yes. He was, he was weak. He had just wasted away. He had every tube and machine imaginable hooked to his body. He was completely immobile. I said, do you believe what I've just said? He said, yes. I said, do you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus? He said, yes. And so I took his hand. And I looked at him and I said, I want you to listen to these words from Romans chapter 10. Paul writes and says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I said, are you willing to do that today? He said, yes. And we spoke a confession of faith together. And his sister Tammy looked at me. She says, what about baptism? How can we baptize him? Maybe you should get some water and sprinkle it on his head. I looked at her. I said, I am absolutely certain that he can be trusted to the grace of God in this moment. And I look forward to seeing him when I get to heaven. Now, are there some people today who would say that he's not in heaven because he wasn't baptized? Yeah, there are. But I disagree with them 100%. But this was a dying man who could not get out of a bed. That does not describe anyone who's here this morning. Not one single person. And so why, why today would you not choose to express your faith through baptism if that's something you've never done before or if that's something you've never made your own decision to do before? 
A man named Nick Ripken is a leading expert on the persecuted church around the world, has personal experience in 70 different countries. I'm going to close. Brian can come. With this story he shared recently in the 2019 article for Christianity Today, he said, within Islamic settings, Muslims equate baptism with salvation. Seekers from Islam investigating relationship with Christ I'm sorry, I'm just really, really tired today. You've got to know that. And this is an emotional subject for me. Muslims equate baptism with salvation. Seekers from Islam investigating a relationship with Christ can explain away many of their activities. If, if they're discovered reading the Bible, they can claim they are studying it in order to debate Christians more intelligently. If they're sneaking into church, they can excuse such behavior in the same way. If they're seen talking to a pastor or some Western Christian, seekers can suggest they were simply witnessing to them about the attributes of Islam but they can't explain away baptism. There is no acceptable excuse. Muslims believe that at baptism, a person no longer belongs to Islam, but to Christianity. They have left one community and joined another one. As a result, at baptism, persecution soars because identification with Jesus is real, irrevocable, and forever. To reinforce that truth, Ripken told the story of a church leader in Iran who was forced to go before 38 men and women who had come to be baptized and tell them that their pastor had just died. He said, the man who loved you enough to tell you about Jesus, who gave you the opportunity for a new and better life, eternal life, has been killed because of his faith. And then this man looked at these 38 men and women and said, this is the cost of following Jesus. What do you think you would do in a setting like that? Ripken went on to write that of those 38 men and women who had come to be baptized, not one single person walked away. So what about you today? I brought a change of clothes. We've got all the baptism towels and all the clothing that anyone would need. And coming to church today, maybe you th the last thing that ever crossed your mind was that you might be baptized today. But why? Why would you not? Why would you not, based on the truth of the Scripture, why would you not, based on the leading and the convicting of the Holy Spirit, why would you not come today and express your faith through baptism exactly the way the New Testament describes? I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to go in the back, and I'm going to hope that someone joins me. If you don't, you don't. And I'll do the same thing at 11 o'clock. I'm sure that many people have thought about doing this before and found a way not to and just walked out the door, but don't do that today. Don't do that today. Join me in the waters today. Father in heaven, thank you for a chance to talk about these things and now guide and direct the response. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.